Welcome to Norse Code, episode 16, your number one podcast for your Minnesota Vikings, where we don't punt on the tough issues, just like the Green Bay Packers. I'm Dusty O'Connell, and I'm your host. I am here with the Reef Hassan of the Daily Norseman. Hey, Dusty. And uh, yeah, another another dismal week in the books for the Vikings 2014-16 game preseason. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up punting, because that was... Sadly, the story of the game, insofar as it didn't happen on one side of the ball. That was nice. Not our side, I'm guessing. Although, uh, we, did, uh, we did manage to punish them pretty hard on kickoffs. So uh, we've, we've got that going for us. But uh, yeah, our, our failure to make the Packers punt even once is probably pretty much the story of the game. Just once. So uh, Tim Este was interviewed after the game, and they were like, uh, so has this ever happened to you? And he was like, nope. I've never had to not punt, which is encouraging. Um, encouraging is one word you could use to describe it. Uh, eye-poppingly terrible is another, although that's actually technically two words. Um, the Vikings performed very, very poorly on third down. In fact, uh, Aaron Rodgers was perfect on third down and fourth down. Uh, well, he wasn't completely perfect on third down. He was perfect on third and fourth down all through the third and fourth quarter. 12 for 12 passing for 187 yards, eight first downs, and two touchdowns. How many yards per attempt is that? I don't have the box score up. Um, 14, 13 point X. What, really? Yeah. 187 yards divided by 12. Holy crap. Well, that's awful. Great. Well, given the... Uh, There's not much I can add to this. This is just terrifyingly bad. Well, you know, the, the only possible, you know, excuse, the only way we can really make ourselves feel better about it is that, you know, pretty much all of our uh, deep defense is injured or traded away as of the end of last season with no Antoine Winfield, no Harrison Smith, uh, Jamarcus Sanford, Chris Cook, unlikely to play this Sunday. I mean... Josh Robinson is good, and Xavier Rhodes is okay, but they're not... You know what world not, is Josh not the Robinson defense. good? Why did you say Josh Robinson is good? <laughs> I'm, look, I'm trying to find one nice thing to say, okay? Uh, uh, can, well, can let's just... talk about the specifics, uh, specifics of the game before we decide to look forward into Dallas. Um, okay, so, you know, Green Bay threw uh, for an obscene amount of yardage. I think once you take into account sacks, uh, it just in total, it's about... Uh, nine net yards per attempt on uh, 29 attempts and two touchdowns, um, which actually, despite the fact that nine net yards per attempt is really impressive, does not begin to tell you the story of the game. Uh, so in addition to that, the Packers were able to run for about point, uh, 4.3 yards per attempt, which is actually sort of the point of indifference for running backs. That's sort of the... If you hit 4.3, you are now uh, hitting a solid success rate. Um, and uh, we can talk about sort of the run defense in a second because I think that's sort of interesting to bring up given uh, how many yards on the ground uh, the Vikings were you know, so willing to give up. Um, but, you know, first I think it's important to note that a lot of the plays that the Vikings gave up uh, 
were, I mean, they were just fundamentally impossible to defend uh, once the ball was in the air. Like, what uh, What are a couple of you know obvious examples that are you know easily explainable on the radio? Sure. Well, um, two you actually heard in the broadcast, uh, and and both were were fairly high profile. The first was this Josh Robinson touchdown. Uh, you know, Gruden just said the ball just whistled by his ear, and there was not much he could do about it, and he was in perfect position. I mean, to be fair, Josh Robinson should have been able to turn his head around, but. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things about that that aren't really sort of a fair evaluation of what happened. The first is that Jordy Nelson is very good at, you know, extending his arms late and tipping off uh, the fact that the ball is coming very late into the route and very late into the catch process. There was not a lot of signal that Josh Robinson had to turn his head around. It, it, you know, now that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, he shouldn't have been able to turn his head around in time because he was in the end zone, and there was not a lot more Nelson was going to do. And so looking for the ball would have been fine. Um, but that would have exposed him to, you know, a cutback or a change in the route. So it, it is his fault that he didn't get his head turned around. But even if he did, it likely would not have been able to stop the ball. Uh, he threw it in the tiniest passing window, and there was actually not even a lot of indication that would have allowed him to turn his head in time. So, so if he had incidentally turned his head, he would have happened to see the ball going by. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. Yeah, it, nearly undefendable, if not undefendable. It was just a, it was a great throw. Um, it threw exactly in the area that was not only undefendable, was perfect for Jordan Nelson to catch it. So, you know, in that sense, you know, some of those throws are, are unstoppable. And that's one of, of a few examples in the game. Uh, and one of two that, that Gruden was able to point out, you know, during the broadcast. But beyond that, um, uh, when, I said it was, when I said it was nine net yards per attempt, I was actually wrong. It was 9.7 net yards per attempt, which is obscene. I don't know how to explain how obscene that is, but that is, in fact, one of the worst. That's one of the worst things. That's awful. Um, but uh, the, the other part of this game is that the Packers gained 182 yards on the ground. That sounds like a lot. I mean, it is a lot. But in all honesty, they came in sort of these weird chunks. And there's a first half, second half story to the game. In the first half, the Vikings were actually really good at you know creating tackles for loss. They, they allowed a couple of, of relatively large runs. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the, Vi- the Vikings were able to, to bottle up the Packers, uh, you know, in, in the first half of the running game. And as soon as the third quarter started... Uh, there was not much, you know, evidently they could do. Uh, the the first uh, thing that popped out to me is that in the third quarter alone, the um, the Vikings gave up, I think it was something like uh, 8.8 uh, 8, uh, yards per attempt on the ground. 8.8 yards per attempt. You're basically passing the ball. And you're doing it in a way that's really consistent because it's running, which means you're consistently gaining first downs. It has nothing to do with making sure that teams respect the runs so that you can open up the pass. It has nothing to do uh, with sort of, you know, uh, play action setups. It has everything to do with purely gaining yards. In fact, here, I just found the, I just found the splits. In the first half, the uh, Packers gained 3.25 yards per attempt. That's a pretty good run defense. Um, and it, it, that's not exactly a, a great explanation of what happened because there were a couple of big runs, but there were a couple of runs that were sort of behind the line of scrimmage. But in the second half, in total, they gained 5.3 yards per attempt uh, once you exclude quarterback kneels. Uh, And that includes some of the runs they didn't really much care about. 
uh, in the in the second half, sort of after they had sort of salted the game away, and the Vikings were well into garbage time. So uh, that was significant, and I think an important takeaway from that. First is that Jared Allen needs to do a little bit better job uh, on on contain, but the most of the damage wasn't really on the outside; it was on the inside. Um, the uh, the nose tackle situation, I think, is a big problem, and this is sort of one of the issues that comes up when you have a nose tackle problem. Um, you know, Fred Evans and Latroy Guyon aren't very good, and they got moved around. But also, a lot of these runs happened on, um, and I'll talk about play design in a second on, on lead draws. Um, where the Vikings were, were in a nickel package, and so they didn't even have uh, a nose tackle. A lot of the times, Everson Griffin was on the field, and he was also a three technique, uh, which means they sort of you know left the middle open a little bit. And because it's a nickel package, there's only two linebackers anyway, which means that either Chad Greenway or Aaron Henderson you know, has to be the person on point for that. And in this case, while it's usually the middle linebacker, it was actually Chad Greenway who needed to take care of the center and stop a lot of those runs at the middle, and he didn't. Um, but the thing I wanted to mention about the first half, second half split is that the Packers were successful on a lot of run plays, like I mentioned, but were unsuccessful on a lot of other run plays. In the second half, they chose basically only to run those successful run plays, and a lot of those were lead draws, and a lot of those uh, were uh, were attacking the B-gap after double-teaming the three technique, and that's usually Kevin Williams. The Vikings weren't able to adjust for that. Um, in fact, you know, second-half adjustments have been a problem all year, uh, and one of the problems there is that the Packers get to pick and choose based off of what happened in the first half, which second half plays, you know, would be successful. And the Vikings weren't able to identify which plays were successful and why and weren't able to stop it, uh, you know. And obviously that's that's really annoying because as the half ended, the Vikings were only down seven points. It didn't feel like that, but they were only down seven points. It wasn't until the fourth quarter that the Packers sort of put the, you know, put their boot on the throat of the Vikings. Um, so in the third quarter, they ended, it was 31-17, to 17, and that's sort of... That's sort of out of reach, but it's not really garbage time. But as soon as uh, James Starks kicked off a 25-yard run for a touchdown you know, at the beginning of the fourth quarter, 38-17, to 17, you sort of had a feeling that the game was lost at that point. Uh, that was the, that was the time when the Law & Order gavel came out, pretty much. Yeah, that was that was it. And, you know, you, you set it up by going 72% on third down. Uh, it leads to situations where, yeah, you can close the door on the entire game in the fourth quarter. Uh, something I... Notice as I was reading up for this game, the Vikings are only 49% at stopping third down conversion on the season. And the last team to give up 50% in a season was the Cleveland Browns in 1995. So uh, your eyes do not deceive you. Stevens is historically bad at stopping third and fourth down. Oh, so there's an interesting thing that came up a couple of years ago when people were looking at... Um you know, success rates and win probabilities and expected points added and stuff like that. And they found that it was better to be uh, – so if you were at first and 10 at a particular position, it's in fact better to be one yard behind on second and one. You're more likely to – it adds to your win probability more. It adds to your expected points. You are more likely to do, you know, well. Um, you know, not just on that play, but but over the series of drives. And the reason for that is your expected yards per play on second and one is significantly higher than it is on first and ten. And you've got, uh, I don't want to say a near 100% chance, but uh, probably near an 85% chance of getting the first down on that series anyway, even if you fail on second and one. So it's not like you're really sacrificing that much of an opportunity for first and ten. And the reason well, wait, I bring so this up... Is because so you're, just let me let me make sure I have this clear before you go any further. So you're saying that it is statistically better for a team to be on their own 38-yard line at second and one 
than it is to be on their own 37-yard line at first and 10? Uh, yes. Well, that seems, I mean, that, that seems like it would, it would naturally follow. I mean, all you need is one more yard for the fresh set of downs, and yeah, you have a much higher probability of getting more than that one yard on second down. So it seems like after one play, you know, your, your field position would be much more likely to be significantly better. But anyway, Plus continue. a new set of downs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the reason I bring that up, uh, and, and, and one more thing, second and one is the single most successful, you know, uh, set of downs in, in the NFL. So, um, or it's the single most successful situation in the NFL uh, because you've got, usually you've got an open field and uh, you could either just decide to run for, you know, a conversion, which is itself valuable, um, or because teams might expect to play action is particularly successful. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because one of the problems that the Vikings had uh, is they were very successful on first and second down. And I'm not saying that they should find ways around that. Obviously, it's better to be successful on first and second down to prevent a fresh set of downs. But it did create a lot of what you know NFL coaches like to call third and manageable situations um, or even second and manageable situations uh, where – uh, you know the Packers were in a position to convert, and you know not all of their third downs, right, were um, were like third and short, but a lot of them were third and short, and a lot of them were short, uh, third and intermediate, and uh, and part of, part of that has to do with uh, you know the defensive philosophy of the Vikings, but a lot of that has to do with execution. Uh, so I've harped sort of all season uh, on the size of what are called no cover zones in the Vikings defense. Um, while I don't think the scheme fundamentally has a lot of problems, I think that that is one of the biggest problems and got exploited in a big way. Uh, Nick Saban has famously said, you know, the head coach at Alabama, if you keep on taking what the defense gives you, you'll take the win. And the reason that's true, especially for a defense that is, that is you know, a large underneath area where they don't send any, you know, coverage units, uh, is because you'll consistently, you know, get first downs. Uh, a no-cover zone is basically a zone where you've chosen not to put any defenders because the field is too large and it's too wide for you to put a defender in every spot and cover every area. It is the responsibility of the intermediate zones, often referred to as sort of the hook-curl zones, uh, to close in on those uh, on those no-cover zones and, and you know prevent yards after the catch because you're not very likely going to prevent uh, you know those those catches from happening. Every defense has them. It's not a it's not a problem that a defense has them. Uh, you know, famously, the Seahawks' no cover zone uh, is you know is is sort of on the sidelines, not like along the sidelines, but uh, you know, but sort of in the flats, uh, which is usually where you throw screen passes. You know, to take advantage of that, um, the Seahawks obviously a lot more talented than the Vikings; they can get away with a lot more. But the Vikings' no cover zone is, is I think, too large. I, I think that they need to move players closer to the line of scrimmage on their spot drops. And that's what happened here. The Packers were able to take what the defense gave them and then set up these really nice third down situations. Uh, in addition to that, the Packers did get two more first downs from penalties, but you know that's not significant. The Vikings got three of their own. They just weren't able to capitalize. Yeah, and, and that's you know a, a pretty good way to encapsulate the game is that we helped give Green Bay every opportunity to win the game, and they took most of them and made the best of them. Uh, we, you touched on this briefly a little bit uh, earlier, but uh, I wanted to draw attention again because you know I tend to agree with you that the the no cover zones are you know too large that we leave you know too much open in that you know ten to or in that you know five to fifteen yard zone behind the line open. 
But, I mean, at the same time, we're playing Green Bay, we're playing Aaron Rodgers, and Jamarcus Sanford was quoted in uh, an article in the Star Tribune as saying, you go back and you look at film and guys were in perfect position, but Aaron Rodgers finds a way to get the ball to his receivers. The passes he throws, there's no way you can really defend it when it comes down to it. And the throws he was making, most quarterbacks would look that way and would be like, oh, that guy's covered. But he finds a way to get the ball in there. Uh, that's a good point. Um, there's one way you can defend it, which is to sack him. But the problem is Aaron Rodgers is harder to sack than ever, and that's not a result of his offensive line, which is pretty haphazard if, if we remember from the offseason. Uh, it's because he's getting at the ball quicker than he ever has in the history of his career. Uh, you know, Pro Football Focus uh, you know, looked sort of at time in pocket. You know, one of the biggest problems is that uh, you know, he holds on to the ball too long. That's, that's just one of the biggest criticisms of Aaron Rodgers overall and has been you know, for a very long time. Uh, but this year, he's held onto the ball, uh, you know, before, you know, before the sack or before an attempt to throw or before any scrambles. On average, he's held onto the, the ball less than 2.7 seconds, which is a significant improvement over other years. In fact, last year uh, may have been sort of uh, among the worst for that. Um, if uh, I, I think it was near 2.8, yeah, it was 2.9 seconds. Um, and those those 0.2 seconds are actually really significant because they increase your sack likelihood, you know, by potentially up to 60%. Uh, it's a pretty big deal. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, the Vikings' defensive ends weren't really, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, doing very much to 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 generate pressure. So you know, once again, the Vikings' story, you know, too little, too late. Yeah. Is there? I mean, they we're starting to hear, you know, rumblings that, you know, Frazier might be fired midseason. And, you know, there's there's even an article on the Daily Norseman suggesting uh, someone in particular as a coach. Why did I put up so many tabs? I can't read them. Jim Tressel has uh, his name is floating around uh, the Daily Norseman as a potential replacement for Leslie Frazier. Should he uh, should he get the axe sooner than later? To his credit, Frazier remains... Um, upbeat, I suppose. We can get things fixed was kind of the theme of his press conference this week, despite what appears to be a case of fiddling while Rome burns. Well, so well, the first thing is this Jim Trestle thing is just that's just Ted being Ted. But yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, hey, he likes Ohio State. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying he brought it up because he's Ted. Well, when reason number two is Trestle ball then you know you, you you kind of feel like you're dealing with somebody who has a dog in the hunt so to speak well yeah ted, ted is a you correctly bought into the bought into the the trestle mythos because it has done him so well you know sort of as an ohio state fan um but you know uh i think that there's i think i think there's more to be had in terms of the in terms of the coaching search i will say this though there's a, there's two things i want to say about about this leslie Frazier situation the first is that I, I, there's not like I don't really know what happens if you fire him midseason. I don't really know what that accomplishes uh, because you can't bring in a coach partway through the season, and so you get an interim head coach like Mike Prefer. He knows he's not going to keep the job. So what, what do you what do you get with that? Um, you have to promote people up, which means you have to you have to you know eliminate sort of one of the positions in order to in order to get a promotion, right? Yeah, and head coach Mike Musgrave just really why do I keep calling him Mike? Head coach Bill Musgrave does not seem like it's in the cards. No, no, it does not. 
Although there's a small chance that he could be a better head coach than an offensive coordinator, although we'll never find out because he's such a bad offensive coordinator, simply because he wouldn't have to call or design plays. <laughs> Since he's not doing the job, he is therefore categorically better at it. Yeah. Uh, Who knows? So, maybe, maybe, you know, the, the quarterback's coach. Well, I don't have a lot of faith in him. Um, but, you know. Maybe the, so what's the other thing about Frazier? Because I, I frankly think the Frazier thing, I only brought it up because, you know, other people are bringing it up and I just realized that I'm contributing to the echo chamber. And I think it's not that interesting of a story because I tend to agree with you that there's not a whole lot of benefit to letting him go midseason. Yeah, I, like I, I just I don't know what happens. Um, like you, you fired a guy, right? He knew he was going to be fired at the end of the season anyway. Um, yeah, take that, Leslie Frazier. Stupid, <laughs> stupid jerk. But the second uh, so, thing is, a lot of people criticize sort of the things that he says, you know, in in post game pressers, and you know, if you're looking for answers, what is he supposed to say? Like, yeah, exactly, right? If you're looking for answers, obviously it's frustrating, but you really, honestly, should not be looking for answers. Like, the the one criticism I can sort of understand is, oh, you should call your players out. But you know, there's, there's two things I have about that. First, I don't really know that there's a lot of success calling your players out publicly that you can't do in a film room privately. Like, I don't know how that... Greg Schiano. <laughs> Greg Schiano has had so much success doing that. Um, he's killing it, as they say. But yeah, if you call out your players publicly, I've, I've not seen any evidence that putting a player's name in the media as someone who underperformed, you know, it, it encourages them or, or makes them do any better. Um, and I, I, I don't remember any anecdotal evidence, even that that's true. Uh, well, I feel like people that believe that are the kind of people that believe that they should be out there, you know, in the blogosphere and writing letters to the Vikings saying you need to fire the coach because then the coach will feel the pressure of the fans wanting him fired and then perform better. If he doesn't feel that pressure, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it, it's like a like a fart in the wind, for lack of a better term. You know, it's the it's the sort of thing that doesn't really make a difference. Well, the second thing I wanted to mention about that is that the one thing I do believe about coaching, well, the one thing, one thing I very strongly believe about coaching and organizationally believe is that uh, if you have an organizational philosophy with one or two or three consistent themes, then you need to stick to it. There's no reason for you to, to move from your philosophy because when you move from your general organizational principle without you know, sort of modifying things all the way at the top, it just gets worse. There's, it, there's not a reason to get better, and I think part of that philosophy includes you know, not calling players out publicly and dealing with these things in private, right? Which is why one of the reasons that you know Frazier wanted to have some discussions with Greg Jennings about the way that he talked about the Packers, uh, you know, one of the reasons that you would do that is you know you do it so that so that you remain consistent in the philosophy. You can hold players accountable privately. You don't have to shame them, and I think that's one of the reasons that you know I think that 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 players like Frazier, like you shame them, and now now they don't really respect you because you're not really treating them like adults. And so I think that needs to stay consistent. And, you know, you can say, well, the philosophy is obviously not working, so you need to change it. But if that's true, then you need to change, like, a lot of things, and you can't really do that sort of during the season. So if you change your philosophy, players begin to distrust you uh, because you're inconsistent. Uh, you're, you're not, you can't be held accountable for the things that you say. Uh, you've basically gone back on the things that you've told them all offseason on how you would behave. And there's no reason to continue to lose the locker room like that. Uh, so, you know, I don't... The only thing that I can expect that makes sense for someone to ask Frazier to do is to call out players, and I don't think that makes sense. Other than that, 
Is he supposed to say, yeah, we suck, it's not unfixable? Well, yeah, I mean, it would be it would be funny if he did say that, but of course he never would. I uh, I did find one when you were uh, mentioning that that last thing about calling out players. I thought of uh, something I heard in the press conference that I wanted to find the quote, and I did uh, from a different Star Tribune article. After leaving the press lectern, Frazier was stopped for a quick general discussion about the relative value of coaching schemes versus personnel in the NFL. Give me the personnel any day, Frazier said. All great teams, it's the personnel. Even when a coach makes a bad call, if you've got the right personnel, they make it right. Well, I mean, that's interesting because the the Vikings don't draft a scheme. That's I think that's pretty obvious at this point. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that that's sort of something that they uh, they do, that they just haven't gotten the right personnel. Uh, for the most part, I will say that the team is more talented than... Uh, the execution of the team. So clearly they're not really doing much about, you know, the philosophy that they just espoused. It's true. And like I and like I mentioned, I mean, there's, you know, some injuries at key positions that make it so that the Vikings don't have a whole lot of choice, even if they wanted to, you know, make some big schematic changes. Uh, the other interesting, well, the more interesting personnel story that, you know, appeared out of nowhere this week. And, you know, actually... The Vikings are probably going to be, you know, true to form again this week. I get so tired of taping these shows on Tuesday nights, and then Wednesday I wake up and the Vikings announce some bit of news that either contravenes some great big long thing we talked about or would have been a much more interesting topic of discussion than whatever we did talk about. So chances are by the time this episode is published, Jared Allen will have already been traded, although I don't see how that could happen given that the trade deadline has passed. But Jared Allen being traded, how about that, huh? (laughs) <laughs> that uh, I, I, I almost wrote down as a wildly irresponsible prognostication that Jared Allen will be re-signed by the Vikings next year, but that's just so ludicrous I laughed at myself and threw it away. Like I, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to try and get out from under his cap space and let him go at the end of the season and that they wanted, Seat- they wanted to send him to Seattle. They wanted to send him to the good team where all the Vikings go, but for whatever reason they couldn't make it work, and I suspect the size of his contract had something to do with it. One of the things that I mentioned on our show either you know last week or a couple of weeks ago is that one of the one of the things that you have to watch out for in a trade is that you know your agent uh, and the you know front office of whichever team you need to be traded to you know need to have an agreement as well uh, because if you're trading for a player you expect to extend that player or at least keep them around and Jared Allen's on sort of the last year of his contract so if you trade for Jared Allen you want him for a little while so one of the complicating factors here is is not necessarily you know, just that the Vikings may have asked for too much or that, you know, the, Seah- the Seahawks, you know, maybe weren't able to find a way to get the cap space in order. But that the negotiations between the agents and, you know, any team involved, you know, may not have looked good because I think it's, you know, really likely that Jared Allen would make more money hitting the free agency market, you know, after the season is over than he is going to be after a trade because they're going to try and reduce sort of his cap hit. And there are ways to reduce a cap hit and get a, you know, a player more money, but the agent may not have liked the framework of the deal that they were offering and may have kiboshed some, some trades. So I think that's like a significant factor that a lot of people aren't really thinking about. But in addition to that, you know, there's, there's, it's a football team, right? You know, because of the importance of you know, schemes and team fit and personnel within those schemes, 
uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time, as we saw, to, to learn, you know, an offense or a defense and then fit into that. For a defensive end, it's a little bit different. It's you're a little bit easier to slot a defensive end in, but you still have to know the line calls and you still have to know the defense. You still sort of have to know the functions of the things that you're doing. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a bit of a synergistic quality to it where, you know, the team that has the player to be traded will always have a small bonus in their, you know, sort of in their understanding of his value. Uh, than the team going to be traded to because, you know, you have the scheme fit, you have the scheme knowledge and all of that, whereas the new team, you likely will not have that. So, you know, those are those are two things that I think are sort of important parts of the discussion. Uh, I don't think it's just the contract because I think there's probably a way around that for any team that, you know, could have been interested, whether that be Seattle or Denver or Dallas or whoever. Um, you know, I guess one rumor is San Francisco, but that doesn't even make sense. Um, but I, I think that one of the one of the things about this deal that are that that's really important is not necessarily that the Vikings and and the Seahawks, the Vikings and the Broncos or whoever didn't agree to terms that made sense to them, but it might just be that they weren't able to work out a framework of a deal with the front office in time for the trade deadline because you know Jared Allen thought he might be able to get more free agency. And that's the problem with trying to pull these things together at the 11th hour. The clock runs out on you, and Norse Code finds a way to not get scooped. Um, <laughs> Finally. So just for posterity's sake, since it would be nice to have a clip of us saying this on the air and you know, just as proof of concept that it happened and all that, uh, how about that Christian Ponder? He had a pretty great game. Did he now? For, uh, well, for Christian Ponder. I'm glad for him. <laughs> 38 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown, 14 to 21 for 145 yards. That's uh, it's a pretty standard uh, average net yards per attempt. And it's below of course average. The, Come on. All right. All right. But it's good for Christian Ponder. It's above his season average, isn't it? It is. His net yards per attempt was not particularly impressive heading in. Um, okay. Well, so... You know, you, you can you can it did raise his, his net yards per attempt average. I mean, it was once you include that, his net yards per attempt is five point eight, um, which moves him up. You know, from I believe around thirtieth to around uh, you know twenty fifth or so. Um, so you know that that's good that it helped move him up to that. But um, and you know, and and to be fair, it's not like he had you know the easiest time of it navigating. You know, with that offensive line, although I think, you know, while the offensive line gave up a ton of pressure, like there were, you know, there were, uh, according to Pro Football Focus, eight hurries and three sacks and one hit allowed. Um, you know, while I think that that is an issue, I think that a lot of the issues are caused by the fact that he doesn't feel the pocket very well. He rolls out into pressure. He doesn't step up away from pressure, et yes, cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I... You know, he didn't actually look all that bad. He looked kind of like an average quarterback. So I, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't temper sort of any praise because, yeah, he he looked pretty good for himself. He looked like an average quarterback, mm -hmm. which is more than what the Vikings have had in a very long time. Yeah, again, the story of the season: flashes of mediocrity, and then returning into the into the cesspool of suck. Uh, yeah. a genuine flash say... of excellence from Cordero Patterson, though. That oh, was nice. Yeah. Nice to see. Great way to start the game. Yeah. Um, I mean, so the special teams were, were great except for, you know, the punt return touchdown, uh, which, 
you know, it, it sounds like, wow, this, this really ambivalent thing that you don't think about a lot was great except for this dagger in your heart. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it does deserve to be said that the special teams have continued to perform at a very high level throughout the season, excepting that punt return touchdown and two fake plays uh, in the Cleveland game. Uh, because they have the highest kick return yard average in the league, by a significant margin, no less. There have been three kick return touchdowns. Two of them are from Cordero Patterson, uh, just in the NFL, period. Uh, you know, the Vikings offense gets, you know, very favorable field position as a result of the special teams, both the punt return unit and the kick return unit. Um, and I can talk about that in a second um, when we talk about the Cowboys game. Um, but uh, I will say that that uh, is marred by the fact that you know, that you will, that they allowed this punt return touchdown on a day where Jeff Locke was actually, you know, punting well, which, you know, it has been, I'm not going to say unusual. He's had good days, but it, it, it's been really inconsistent. You don't know which, which punter to expect from him. And, you know, I don't know a lot about rookie punters. Maybe this is normal and it's just part of what we have to deal with. But um, that is, that is significant. So let's uh, let's talk about the the Cowboys game. The uh, I mean the, the the Green Bay game was less torturous to watch than the Giants game, but uh, still not much of a game. Uh, I suspect as much for the Cowboys game as well, just because Tony Romo has that annoying tendency to play up to his competition and play down to them as well. He managed to do that in a very Tony Romo fashion against Detroit, where they managed to lose 31-30, to while Stafford threw for 488 record-setting yards. So the average margin of victory throughout that game was like seven points in the Cowboys' favor. They were leading for so long and were doing so well until the fourth quarter, uh, which is a fairly significant quarter. I understand that. But... Man, and it, it, clearly, you know, the game is not entirely on him. Anytime any receiver, I don't care who it is, it could be Jerry Rice, it could be Randy Moss, it could be Calvin Johnson, anytime any receiver sets a record for the most receiving yards in a regulation game, uh, because the, the doo-doo beat him for the seven yards they did in overtime, uh, the defense, uh, there are problems, you know? <laughs> uh, Jerry Jones, uh eccentric billionaire crazy person claims that Deion Sanders could have shut down Megatron. Yeah, he's also said that Des Bryant is a better receiver than Megatron. He says this stuff all the time. <laughs> well, that's why I call that was I was careful to refer to him as billionaire eccentric you know, crazy person. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, the, the, the blame does not lie completely with, you know, one man. I mean, Dallas was only able to score 10 points on four turnovers. And yeah, Megatron... Megatron his way to approximately six million yards. <laughs> Sorry, I just I, I need I don't know why I want to defend Tony Romo because I hate the Cowboys so much, but <laughs> I just feel like he's misunderstood. Well, I don't, I don't he, blame you. He's yeah. the story that Kurt Warner is, right? Except he just didn't get the ring, and Kurt Warner's better. But the point is <laughs> that, that he, <laughs> he's, he's, he's like he's like percent of the agent from Eastern Illinois. He's he's the underdog. But no, screw him. That's yeah, the, I would I say like them so much be because he's an Tony, Tony Romo has benefited a lot from institutional support. I mean, if he was not on the Cowboys, I think uh, right, the, the story about him would be a little different. Okay. So Tony Romo throws for three touchdowns, 
Yeah, so he throws for three touchdowns, and he doesn't throw for any interceptions. He throws for seven yards an attempt, which isn't amazing, but it's pretty good. Um, but his running backs combine for 2.4 yards an attempt. That is not enough. No. It's abysmal. And uh, there are like, you know, there are other metrics of, of looking at, at running back success, and one of them is run success rate, you know, basically, you know, how, how often a run was successful. So if you have, you know, a five-yard run and a negative five-yard run, you've been successful about 50% of the time. And I think I've talked about this metric in the past. Uh, you know, 60% or 40% of first down, 60% of required yardage to convert on second down, 100% on third down and fourth down. And their run success rate, uh, I believe, was the uh, was the worst in um, uh, of of the day. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. or sorry, of the weekend. While they allowed a run success rate that was unequivocally the best of the weekend. Uh, so there wasn't really like there's just. He didn't get any help from his offensive line. Uh, he was able to avoid sacks, obviously. Uh, but he didn't get help from, you know, sort of the run game. Des Bryant had a really good game. No one remembers that. But he had a really good game. Um, Terrence Wayne. Well, he managed to catch, oh, well, they only went to him, what, eight or nine times? And he came down with five or six receptions for many yards and two touchdowns? Uh, yes, yeah, six targets, three receptions, 72 yards. The problem is Terrence Williams. Uh, so, so statistically you look at Terrence Williams and, uh, and you see, oh, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's not bad, right? He, uh, you know, he had two receptions for 64 yards, you know, and a touchdown, uh, but he was thrown to 10 times and he gets two receptions. <laughs> hey. That's not enough. Yeah. <laughs> that is dismally bad. The fact that any of his attempts go go to this one guy, and they're just not very successful attempts, and he still ends up with seven yards per attempt. That's kind of impressive. Uh, I predict that Des Bryant will destroy the Vikings. I believe you are correct. I anticipate that the Vikings will find themselves defensively functionally useless against Tony Romo, and their offense. Well. Uh, David Moore, a writer for the Dallas Morning News, writes about the Cowboys that, let me find the quote, eight games deep into this season, we have learned that this defensive scheme makes average quarterbacks look bad, good quarterbacks look great, and encourages great quarterbacks to write the first draft of their Hall of Fame acceptance speech. <laughs> wow. Which I thought was amazing, but if, but if, the, if true... What does that mean for a quarterback who only shows flashes of mediocrity like Christian Ponder? Are the, is he just going to be completely embarrassed as well? Um, I think, you know, it depends, right? Because the biggest issue for him is pressure. Uh, the, the Cowboys don't, like, they've got injuries at defensive end. I don't know if George Selvey is still active, but uh, I know that, you know, uh, you know, is it DeMarcus Ware? is injured, right? Um, and so that's sort of their leader on defense. DeMarcus Ware expects to be back. He practiced this week. He expects to be back for Sunday, but, you know, you never know. Are you serious? Yeah. Okay, well, great. <laughs> There's some bad news for you. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, so DeMarcus Ware is back suddenly. Great. So, uh, the uh, the dude replacing him, I think his name is George Selvey, um, has been pretty good. He's been great. But the the big thing from from the Cowboys is actually uh, their defensive tackle, Jason Hatcher, 
uh, who, uh, according to Pro Football Focus, anyway, has seven sacks. I don't know how many half sacks or whatever he has. Uh, they don't. They don't care about half sacks. So they don't count them. They count them as full sacks. But um, you know, he has he has seven sacks according to them, and uh, that that's from that's from interior pressure. You know, obviously the worst pressure you can get against an underperforming offensive line. Uh, like the Vikings, so they'll they'll put him under pressure, and that'll be a problem. You know, Morris Claiborne hasn't really lived up sort of it to his draft stock, but he could probably take advantage of some floaters, right? Uh, Sean Lee is the best, uh, probably the best four three inside linebacker right now. I can't think of a, a better one. Uh, you know, Levante David is up there, Luke Keekley is up there, but against the pass, you can't really beat Sean Keekley or, or Sean, Sean Lee, um, who you know is. Is is going to absolutely wreck, uh, you know, the Vikings come uh, come from Sunday. The point spread on Boveda as of this podcast, uh, ten and a half favoring Dallas. So it hasn't changed since it's open. I saw that it was at ten and a half, and I tweeted out earlier. This doesn't make any sense. Um, except, I mean, except you're right that since Tony Romo plays down to his competition, they'll only probably win by ten and a half. But <laughs> they'll win by ten. <laughs> the, <laughs> um, but any the score will be twenty to ten. Any model that I've looked at that doesn't you know incorporate that, that basically only incorporates box score data, like the ones that I've produced for the you know for the power rankings and stuff like that. All of those models see Dallas is winning this by twenty four points. Obviously, that's a bit much. Uh, it's probably more than what's going to end up happening. Um, but the models don't know even that DeMarcus Ware is healthy, right? So there, there's like some reasons to believe that, you know, maybe that's even worse, right? Well, I think the word healthy deserves air quotes around it. Just because he's playing doesn't mean he's completely healthy. And we haven't, we haven't seen him play, only that he did practice this week and said in a couple of, you know, press bits about the Des Bryant thing, which we'll get to in a second, yeah. that he expects to play this week. Okay, so the, the probability that he plays at a high level against the Vikings has increased from zero to something. Um, <laughs> to, from zero to at least 50. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that's not good. Um, but I will say this. The Dallas Cowboys are a remarkably efficient team when their running backs aren't terrible. Um, it's sort of a lot to ask. But, uh, <laughs> well, if anyone can make the Dallas running core look good, it's the Vikings. It's true. Uh, I think DeMarco Murray, I think he's, like, probable. Uh, so he'll probably be back. Uh, he's probable, so, so he'll probably be back. Yeah, he'll be back. Um and uh, while he hasn't been sort of God's gift to running ever since sort of he broke out, he has still been, you know, averaging uh, 4.7 yards per attempt against, you know, other defenses. Uh, so now when they don't have, you know, John Randall running the ball for them, you know, they'll, they'll probably be, uh, you know, in a, or sorry, not John Randall, wrong Randall, Joseph Randall. <laughs> I know. I was like, doesn't, doesn't John Randall, didn't he play defense? You know that he could play running back against the Vikings at his age right now and probably destroy us. That's that's probably accurate, but I feel like most season ticket holders for most teams are eligible for that spot as well. Um, it looks like the best thing we can do as Vikings fans is take our you know special super secret knowledge of how brutally bad our team is and use it to get some imaginary money value out of the Dallas Cowboys money line. Um... Yeah, I don't really know that there's a whole lot to say about this game other than that it's in Dallas and will probably be a bloodbath. Yeah. Um, in terms of the ways the defense needs to respond to the offense, like, you know, if you break down sort of, um, you know, what 
what the scheme is and sort of how to respond to that scheme. You know, it's it's a simpler scheme than the one the Vikings are used to. It's a simpler scheme than a lot of the other um, than the other sort of schemes around the NFL, especially the ones uh, that you know, like the Patriots run uh, or uh, or that Atlanta runs, or you know, things like that. Um, but the offensive system is it's it's basically a modification of the what's called the Air Coriel offense, uh, which was developed like with Don Coriel in San Diego. Um, a lot of people think that it means sort of a, a deep passing offense, and in fact, that's what it originally was. Um, but really, it's more of a philosophy and a terminology that emphasizes you know um, simple route combinations uh, and, and simple adjustments to those routes to the point where you know. For the most part, receivers will run, you know, nine different routes and, you know, the halfbacks will run, you know, five or six different routes. And you just need to make sure that you understand sort of which one of those routes are on defense. Uh, it's going to be slightly easier to recognize those routes. So the defenders will need to make sure that they understand those keys going into the game and jump those routes because they're not going to do a very good job covering Des Bryant man to man. So there's probably going to be a lot of zone defense. And I would actually hope there's a lot of zone defense because really the only way that they can beat this system is to make sure that they increase their likelihood of of getting interceptions. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the the way to the way to you know combat the problem of Des Bryant because I don't think Terrence Williams deserves a ton of attention. Although now that I've said that, I'm sure I'm sure he'll go off. Um, is to is to roll coverage over him so that you've got one safety always lined up over his side of the field uh, directly above him. Uh, I don't know who that would be. Um, my guess is uh, Mistral Raymond because he's a little bit better at coverage, but that that doesn't mean a lot. Um, but uh, but then also make sure that you you engage in 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 uh, press zone concepts so that you hit Des Bryant um, before you hit your. Um, before you hit your spot, um, which means you need to hit him and then and then go back to your landmark as quickly as possible. Because if you try to hit him and keep him jammed for a while, he'll beat you, and then you've got Des Bryant one on one against Mr. L. Raymond, and that's uh, terrible. So, you know, Des Bryant will win that war every time. Yeah. So that's that's what's going to happen there. Uh, Doug Free and um, and the other offensive tackle whose name escapes me right now. Um, we're both actually having a pretty good season this year. The reason I mentioned Doug Free is because I'm surprised at how good of, how good a season is. Um, he's he's doing better as a run blocker uh, than he ever has been. But really, sort of the sneaky secret is that uh, he is very good as a pass protector right now, uh, which is not something you'd expect. Oh, Tyron Smith, uh, the guy at USC that uh, Matt Khalil beat out. Um, yeah, they're both having very good years this year. Uh, so it'll be difficult for, uh, you know, Jared Allen, you know, hopefully he's motivated after all this trade talk, um, and, uh, and Brian Robeson and at times Everson Griffin to get to Tony Romo because Romo is very, you know, mobile and the offensive tackles are doing better than they have in, you know, maybe a long, long, long time. Uh, so, uh, it'll be difficult to get pressure without being able to, to generate a lot of coverage. And like I said, that coverage will be hard to come by. Uh, interior pressure might be a little bit easier if the Vikings tackles were a little bit better. You know, I don't really like that that interior line except for the center, Travis Frederick, who might be, uh, you know, in the running for uh, one of the better centers in the game right now. Uh, you know, first round draft pick. It's not too surprising, um, but he does allow his share of QB hurries, even if he doesn't allow that many sacks or hits. Um, so. I think that really what what needs to happen is baiting Tony Romo more than anything else, and then sort of letting the other things take care of themselves in the run game. So that's what I think the Vikings' likely response is going to be. 
Well, there you go. Yeah. So uh, should we care about no. Des Bryant uh, yelling at his no. teammates on the sideline because he wants to win so badly slash because he is a crazy person? Uh, why? Why Why is this even a thing? I don't, like, I don't understand why. Like, for a while, like, my timeline was full of this. I saw Facebook posts about this. I don't even have any friends in Dallas. I don't even know why I saw Facebook posts about this. But, like, you know, it was weird because, you know, after the game was over, I was able to catch some ESPN chatter while I was writing something else up. And, uh, you know, Keyshawn Johnson was defending him, you know, maybe perhaps a bit too passionately. Uh, the coaches, uh, the former coaches that were there were attacking him and, you know, honestly, like he had, so th- he did a bad thing, right? Which is probably to interrupt a meeting. Um, but so they. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way, yeah, it seems like it should be front page news all over Twitter and the blogs for days. Like, <laughs> Des Bryant interrupts meeting more at eleven. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, well, he interrupted like a session between Garrett Callahan and and, and Romo, sort of. But they released the audio for that, and. Uh, and you know he, you know, you know he said some stuff like "give me the ball" or whatever, right? Which is what every receiver says when the game is down and they want to win. Um, but it wasn't even that much of an interruption because they ended up discussing sort of, you know, sort of the next set of things that they would do in response to the coverage that they saw. Um, now the yelling at, with or at Demarcus Ware and, and Jason Witten, I don't know. I feel like people don't understand how often players yell at each other. Like, this kind of happens a lot. And we, we always talk about the instances of Tom Brady and Peyton Manning doing it. And, yeah, they do it a lot. Um, and no one really ever criticizes them for it. Um, but, like, a lot of players do it a lot. I know. This seems so – this seems like the opposite of news. Like, just a, just an everyday happening. Like, squirrel gathers nuts and then scares dog. Like That's functionally that, – yeah, that's, that's about as impactful as this news is. So what I want to know is, like, what's – What's the deal here? Like my 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 no agenda like distraction detector alarm is kind of going off because this is clearly a very important story to the media and to the league. Why else would the NFL be releasing extra video and audio clips of Des Bryant like stomping around yelling at people on the sideline if this was not just like a a pretty calculated PR move. And if, if it is that, then why is it that? Like, it's the, it's the kind of story that apparently, you know, the media and, you know, by extent, some sports fans love to eat up because, you know, it's, it's clearly here. And, yeah, even I was seeing stuff on Facebook about it. And I, my, my distaste for both the Cowboys and Texas in general is well known. Yeah, well, there's a narrative. I don't think this should surprise you, but the narrative existed before this game. Des, exactly. Des Bryant is immature. And I don't think there's any I, – I'm willing to say that based on the little information I have, and I have very little information on every player, right? So I can't really say that a particular player is mature or immature except, you know, reputation, right? I can probably surmise that Peyton Manning is a fairly immature player, but – Well, and I think Des Bryant doubled down on that narrative when he said, you know, earlier this week that, you know, he's probably going to put up a game just as big as Megatron's. Yeah, what a – bad week to say that <laughs> but <laughs> which cleared which you know turned out not to be true and you know both the marcus ware who has come out and you know fanned the flames of the story and des bryant have said that you know it was just about winning it had nothing to do with the stupid competition that bryant was always destined to lose but i think that him just you know going out and saying things like that before having a week like this it just yeah, feeds you're that right. precious just... precious narrative but yeah so uh so, so before the draft des bryant was was known as um you know, as, as, you know he, there was a problem, right? Because 
immaturity was was sort of the biggest calling. In fact, a lot of uh, there's a story where Jeff Ireland, the general manager of the Miami Dolphins, this is actually more a story about Jeff Ireland and how awful he is. But the reason that that this happened is because there were a lot of maturity problems, you know, surrounding him um, before the draft. And you know, Jeff Ireland says, you know, is it true that your mom's a whore? Because he wanted to. You <laughs> when know, did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, basically. Except I think that it was a rumor, right? But who cares? Uh, but yeah, basically, yeah, it was, it was just to get a rise out of him to see how he would react, and he wanted to use that information to sort of, you know, figure out his draft strategy. Uh, and Des Bryant reacted very, very poorly to this question. <laughs> uh, and so a narrative was born. Yeah, and it <laughs> continued. So. Uh, he nearly went bankrupt, I think, if I remember correctly, his rookie year, because he owed like a ton of money to like jewelers and stuff. And so he had to borrow against his contract. And it, this is all fuzzy, fuzzy memory. Um, but I know, that, I know that he owed money for sure. Um, and then he got into an altercation with his mother later where I think he ended up shoving her. I don't know. Um, so there's like a lot of stuff here where that's like real and true and like worrisome. And at some point um, – Jerry Jones and Des Bryant came to an agreement where he functionally got a babysitter. Um, and so I, I do have the text of the agreement brought up because I think that this is important context. Um, so here are the ground rules, right? So first he has a midnight curfew, and if he's going to miss curfew, team officials must know in advance and why. He cannot drink alcohol, he cannot attend any strip clubs, and he can only attend nightclubs if they are approved by the team and he has a security team with him. That's a babysitting team. More on that later. He must attend counseling sessions twice a week, and he is rotating three-man security that will leave one man with him at all times. They will drive him to practices, to games, and team functions. There is a really well-established narrative that he's really immature. You know what that reminds me of? That, that whole story, and I, and I remember it now that you, you know, attach his name to it. It reminded me of a high school football player and his parents and his coach and his probation officer after he gets busted like punching some other kid at a party figuring out how exactly they're going to come up with a with a plan that lets all the adults save face and lets the kid keep playing on the team while he's on probation for third degree assault or whatever yeah and it's just like all right i guess but yeah with the it's a pretty strong narrative that you know, people have been pretty happy to promote as needed. And, and of course, it's with the Cowboys. I mean, if, if Des Bryant were, were just, you know, some, you know, second receiver on like Cincinnati or Cleveland or or Tampa Bay, you know, some team that, well, I guess maybe Tampa Bay isn't the, well, that the best would, team that to be choose for. Well, that would be think about this, though. Eldon Smith uh, for the 49ers, um, we're not hearing a lot about him. Um but he went to rehab for substance abuse problems, and before that, he like mm -hmm. threw a bottle at his teammate because his teammate was trying to make sure that he wouldn't drive home drunk. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he he has a, a DUI charge. There are three felony counts of illegal possession of an assault weapon. But we we haven't heard a lot about Eldon Smith. And, 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 and Aaron Hernandez killed a guy. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> haven't really heard that. Haven't really heard much of a narrative about him, other than how he killed that guy. But uh, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, although that pretty much speaks for itself. Yeah. But it's like you know, you leave it to Jerry Jones and the Cowboys, you know, quote unquote America's team, to 
you know, propagate the formula and be the ones towing this this media story with an assist from the entire internet and also NFL video and audio archives. Well, so here's something that I think underscores how willing people are to to drive home this narrative, right? So there are things that are real and concerning about his maturity problems, right? Obviously. But why would you ever publish a story about how he wore his baggy pants too low at the mall? Oh, because that that's the sort of thing that gets Grandpa all upset and makes him wag his cane at the at the television and claim that in his day football didn't have time for that stuff. <laughs> so yeah. That's uh there you Great. go. So Des Bryant. Just Des Bryant in it up. To be fair, they kicked him out of the mall because he refused to <laughs> Well, good. At least, at least they're not willing to bend their borderline racist dress code <laughs> for professional NFL players with attitude problems and babysitters. Um, yep. Wow. I think we so, said all we can uh, about this Des Bryant story. I think we've said all we can about uh, the Vikings Cowboys game and the Vikings Packers game, which would bring us to the customary end of part one of episode sixteen of Norse Code. Tune in next time where not only will we have some highlights from around the league because we realize that uh, some of you might have things to do rather than listen to the show all day, which is disappointing, but we can work with it. Um, We will have a new number of the week for you and some wildly irresponsible prognostications in which I go again very close to making a crazy parlay. Plus, we have decided to bring you the Norse Code First Annual Midseason Awards, where we look at most positions through the lens of fantasy football and uh, many of the coaching and, uh, and support positions as well to determine who is the best and who is the worst halfway through your 2013 season. For Arif Hassan, I am Dusty O'Connell. This has been part one of episode 16 of Norse Code. Our formula is this. We go out and we hit people in the mouth. Norse Code is the official podcast of the Daily Norseman SB Nation blog and is produced with cooperation from Pompous Jerk Productions. Pompous Jerk Productions. Attitude with attitude. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of their contributors and do not reflect official positions of the Minnesota Vikings, SB Nation, the Daily Norseman staff, or PJP. No information in this podcast should be construed as gambling advice. Please obey all local gaming laws. Our formula is this. We go out, we hit people in the mouth.